April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Canvas Pop. Canvas Pop makes it easy for you to turn any photo into a piece of art ready to hang on your wall. They can even turn Instagram and Facebook photos into gorgeous canvas art or custom-framed photo prints. If you're anything like me, photos from fishing trips and experiences can tend to accumulate and get lost in the busyness of day-to-day life. When Canvas Pop reached out to me, I realized a canvas print of my fishing trips would be the perfect way to display my photos. Ordering was incredibly easy. I just went to canvaspop.com where I live chatted with Julie from their customer support team. She walked me through the process, helped me pick what size would work best, as well as the best framing option. I even received a proof of what the print would look like before it was sent to print. So if you're looking for a fabulous gift idea for Christmas, if you order by December 17th, your print will be delivered in time to be unwrapped under the tree. Better still, Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code ANCHORED at checkout, or you can visit www.canvaspop.com. I can't wait to see what you get hung up on your walls. Don't forget to use the hashtag CanvasPopAnchored to show off your masterpiece. Russell Chatham is a world-renowned artist best known for his watercolor paintings. An avid fly fisher and hunter, it was inevitable that he would end up spending a major chunk of his life in Montana, where he further attached himself to the outdoors. In this episode, I meet with Russ in San Francisco, where we discuss his past, his fame, and some honest truths about his life behind closed doors. I was uh, born in San Francisco, actually. We lived here in the city in uh, over in Pacific Heights till I was nine. And, and then in 1949, we moved to Marin County. Oh, okay. So still in California. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, the thing is that I was born in 1939. Of course, the war started shortly thereafter. So for all those five years of the war... Life was very peculiar here. I mean, it was, my dad was an air raid warden, and we and all the windows in the houses were. Well, we had plywood over all our windows to darken them, and you were not allowed to drive at night with headlights on. Uh, everybody thought the Japanese were going to attack San Francisco, right? And so there was even nets across the Golden Gate to keep the submarines out. So when I did a, a tour through the city the other day, I noticed that there were all these structures that looked as though they once held tanks oh, they did. around the or cannons, cannons. Over on the, overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Oh, well, the whole thing, both sides of the bay, was nothing but armaments. So you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and my dad had a he was an air raid warden for the block for the block we lived on. So he had a he had a helmet and he had a gas mask. <laughs> that day. And you know, you weren't allowed to, um, like I said, you couldn't drive with your with your headlights on. And every day, the garbage truck would come around and they had these caps that they'd go down the street and put the caps over the street light so that you couldn't see them from above. Oh. And so you could drive as long as you kept your headlights off. It was enough light to drive down the streets. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that's what people thought. They thought that the Japanese were going to bomb San Francisco or at least come in... Somehow, you know, and uh, 
like I said, they, they were fearful of, of ships coming in, you know, and also submarines. That, of course, obviously never happened. But it was also, it was also the scene of a, of a great social tragedy, which was that all of the Japanese who lived, who, and there were a lot of them, who were actually citizens born and raised in California, were put in concentration camps out in the valley or in Nevada or, you know, there were these camps, took all their stuff away, all their land, all their possessions. You know, it's horrible. I mean, really, really horrible. It's a real black eye on, a, on the face of America today. And it's, just, it's pr kind of pretty much in the news now because, because the younger people didn't know all this. And then when they find out, they just can't believe it. <laughs> right. Did your dad ever get called out to go and fight in the war? No, he didn't. And, and if you ask me why, I can't answer because it never, you know, I don't think during the Second World War there was any conscription. I think you, I think if you signed up for the Army or the, you know, for the armed forces, I think it was all voluntary. Oh. I think so. I, I could be, maybe I'm not telling it correctly, but, but anyway, no, he was not in the, he wasn't in the war. Did you have siblings growing up? Yeah, I had uh, th uh, two sisters and a brother that were two years and four years younger than me. Oh, so you're the eldest. I'm the oldest one, yeah. Okay. Now, where does it go from there? Where does the outdoor, well, where then, the outdoors enter your life? Well, then, right after the war, and I was probably seven, I would say, because they're pretty close after the war. The, the Golden Gate Bridge opened in 1939, the year I was born. Well, with the war on, and it, people it were slow to realize that you could now get to Marin County in five minutes. Oh. Before the bridge was built, you had to take a ferry boat. So, you know, it was an expedition to get to Marin County. So my dad, since I was, like I said, I was probably seven, I'm guessing, but that's probably about right. So my brother and sister, who were fraternal twins, were two years younger than me. So they were too young to do this. So my dad would take, put me in the car and he would drive across the bridge. And he knew, he had a, a, one, a family member that had a summer home out in... A town, it's not a town, it's a, a community called Lagunitas, and there's a creek there, a beautiful creek, which is known as, sometimes known as Lagunitas Creek or Paper Mill Creek or uh, or San Geronimo Creek, and, and he would go over there and he would fish a little bit, and he would also lower uh, screen traps to catch crawfish because he liked to eat them. Oh. So I would help him do that. And, and fish sometimes too, but really primitive fishing. I mean, they were baby steelhead is what they were, but we didn't know that. He didn't know it, and I didn't know it, of course. But anyway, uh, so that was a kind of an early imprint. And then on my mother's side, that we have uh, her uh, father's father came over to this country around 1860, 55 or 60, and bought land down in the Carmel Valley down south of here. And they began ranching. Before the gold rush? Uh, was right after the gold rush. When was the gold rush in California? 49, 19, or 1849. Oh, it was that early? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was still kind of going on. I mean, they were still raping and pillaging up in the mountains there. Yeah. You know? but, uh, but anyway, down there, then we spent summers on the ranch, and there was a beautiful creek, a tributary of the Carmel River that went through the ranch. And there, in those days, there were a lot of steelhead in the Carmel River. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the f little fish that we caught were baby steelhead. But nobody 
Nobody really ever stopped to think about that. Right. You know, my father called them speckled brook trout because they were living in a brook and they had spots on Okay. Them. <laughs> and that's how rumors started. And that's right. <laughs> so, and but I figured out by the time when we moved over to the country, which it was, Marin County, we were in San Anselmo, I, fi- I had figured out by that time that that these little fish were baby steelhead. Because even by the time I was 10 or 11, I was, you know, just obsessed with, with fishing of any kind. And I read the fishing magazines. I read Field and Stream and Outdoor Life. And so, so I knew that I knew what these fish were. So we would catch them. My, my, my neighbor, my buddy that was my age, we would catch them in the creeks over there. And uh, but we had agreed that we would never kill one because we knew what they were. Even back then, was there any sort of conservation spin on steelhead? No, nobody, back then? no, nothing. So what what was the inclination to want to protect them for you back then? Well, because we knew they were we we, we knew that they if when they grew up they came back. <laughs> oh, you didn't want to kill the little ones, right? Ah, gotcha. You yeah. know, and I mean, I to be honest with you. In all the years I steelhead fish, and I mean, I'm certain I've caught 10,000 steelhead, I can only remember ever killing three. Are you serious? Dead serious. And at that, at that time, I was considered a crazy person because you do not throw fish away. Right. When you catch a fish, you take it home. You know, and the limit was five. A day. You could kill five a day. And everybody, if you got five, you killed five. Right. I mean, I didn't, but... Many people did, but but there were a few, there were a few people that particularly, the ones that peeled off into fly fishing, which which there was a core group of fly fishermen in the late 1940s. Well, actually, before that, they, they before the war in the 1930s, and they they came from San Francisco, most of them, and they you know those people. Nobody with a with any kind of conscience is going to kill five ten pound fish. What the hell are you going to do with them? How many can you eat? Right. You know, and it was the same with with the striped bass. And the game warden over there was a name was Al Giddings, a very very good warden. You know, he never bothered ordinary people if they didn't have their license. He'd send them down and buy one and all that. But he was looking for the real poachers, the people spotlighting deer and selling. Mm. People would catch you know striped bass and other fish. And sell them to the fish dealers here. He wanted those guys. Yeah. But he, but even Al, you know, was when I when I first met him, and I was only sixteen years old, and I I pretty much threw everything I caught back. I mean, I take one of something home because my I, I did like to eat him. My dad loved to eat him. He says, basically, God for God's sake, bring me one." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? But he, you know, he would he would just shake his head. He said, "You're gonna throw that one back too, huh?" Yeah, what am I Were you in high school during all of this? I was in high school from uh, 1953 until 1957. You did finish? Oh, yeah, but I was fishing every day during high school. Yeah, did you have friends who also fished? I had one, my one friend who's no longer living. He and I were the only two kids we knew that fished uh, out of the whole high school. He lived about from here to to where Jimmy Adams had his stuff set up back there apart. And we fished this little creek, Sleepy Hollow Creek, San Anselmo Creek, that went by the house. And we, I'm sure we caught and released every single fish in it. I'm absolutely positive. When does the fly fishing enter your life? Well, we knew about fly fishing because we read about it in the magazines. And my cousin, 
my my mother's sister was married to a man, and and he, and he and his wife, my mother's sister and her husband, were both artists, as was my grandfather. And his name was Phil Wood. He loved to fish. His father had been a doctor and had fished in the 1920s and 30s, and he had seen. The, the father would, would go by stagecoach up to like Shasta or, or the, the northern rivers, come back with, with these huge trout on ice in the stagecoach and bring them to the cabin on the Russian River. So anyway, so, so he, Phil, my uncle, was, you know, he was all into it before the, in the 1930s. So after the war, uh, when, when my, my cousin Tom and I got to be, well, we were like 12, 13 he said, you guys want to try it? I said, yeah. You know, so he had several, he had five or six fly rods and reels and stuff. And we came out here. He brought us out here. To San Francisco. Well, we, yeah, but they lived in San Francisco. I was in Marin. Right. But I would, we were very close. So I would come over here and Phil would take us out to the casting pool. Oh, you mean the pond itself? Yeah. I should back up for our for the listener. So we are currently sitting in a truck, a very hot truck. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. Okay, you just let me know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. when you need me to roll windows down. The reason the windows aren't rolled down is because we're at Spayorama, and the announcer is very microphone happy right now. <laughs> um, so that's that's where we're at. With that's where we are. Yes, everybody, you heard me. I've got Russell Chatham sitting in a truck. <laughs> it's so wrong, but here we are. Um, so you came to the ponds. So we came over here, and uh, the guy. I I, I remember it. it's clear. I remember the first time we ever came here because Phil had figured this all out. I mean, at that time. The Sunset Line Company started making shooting heads about 1950, 51, mm -hmm. and Phil caught on to that right away. So when and he said, "This that's what you really kind of need to have. You're supposed to have to go steelhead fishing, but a lot of guys that hadn't really caught on to that yet. So, so Phil had, for example, a uh, there was a famous tournament caster named Marvin Hedge. He lived in Oregon, and he came down here and he had. He had developed this fly line. It was a weight-forward silk line. Of course, that was in the 40s and the early 50s. Silk was the only material. Mm -hmm. And it was called a Marvin Hedge 7 Taper Line. And it was, it was designed to, for long casts for steelhead. And Phil had one of those. And he, but he gave the rod that he gave to Tom and, and, and the other one to me, he put the shooting head on. Well, we didn't have any idea what you're supposed to do with it. You know, we came out here and guys went out on the thing and were flailing around out there. And the, and the guys from the club came over and said, here, you, you guys look like you need a little help. <laughs> and uh, so they kind of showed us what to do, you know. And then from there, we didn't, you know, we didn't come over here and hang out all the time because, you know, we would go to the Russian River. I said, well, we don't need to practice at this pool anymore. We need to practice in the river. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the first thing we fished for, uh, I think the first season we fished for shad, which there was quite a few in the Russian River. On the fly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we caught them. <laughs> and then, then as the, the shad run this time of year, May and June, and then and when the fall came around in October, November, December, then we thought, well, this is the time when the steelhead run. Phil knew all about it. He, he you know, he's, 
uh, as long as the water wasn't too high and dirty and all that, that uh, he knew when to go fishing, you know, when the water was dropping and all. So we started doing that. And by the time, you know, I was like, say, not yet old enough to drive, but let's say 15, I just was like crazy to get that driver's license so I could take myself to the rivers. <laughs> That, that was exactly me at 16. I counted down from 13 to 16. I did. Gotta just, oh, are you kidding me? Almost there. I just was like, I said, I've got to get where the real fish are. Come on, come on, come on, yeah. come on. <laughs> and we had real fish here. I mean, I put, my buddy that lived next to me in San Anselmo, you know, we figured out pretty early on that, that in the wintertime when the creek came up, that's when the steelhead came in. Mm. And I'll never forget the first time I saw one. And uh, I, I was probably 13, 12 or 13. I, I don't remember, but right in there. And I was still, we were still fishing with, with worms for the, for the little guys, you know. And I was walking down along this road and I, I heard a splashing noise. And I looked down at the creek and here was this like six or eight pound steelhead thrashing his way through this riffle. And I just, I just started screaming, you know. And he got into this like a hole, like a like a deeper place, you know. So I just turned around. I ran as fast as I could back to his house, which wasn't that far. It was like a five-minute run. And he was there. And I says, Kelly, you got to, you not going to believe this. And so I, so we knew, I mean, our knowledge was like pieced together stuff from the magazines and everything. And we knew about, we knew about, we each had a spinning outfit. Mm -hmm. So we knew about lures and stuff. So but this creek was as wide as this car. I mean, it was, you know, and I'd seen a couple of others, and I thought, there's got, there's steelhead in that pool, and what are we going to do about it? So I got a flatfish, and I tied it on to this, the rod. Didn't I didn't have a, I, there was, I had a reel, but you couldn't cast in there. So he was down below me somewhere. I went around to the, up to the head of the pool, and the pool was about as, twice the size of this car. And and I took some line out and I lobbed this flatfish down underneath these bushes and let it go into the pool, you know, and started pulling it back. And I could feel this flatfish going like this and it stopped. <laughs> and I had the steelhead on. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I was a skelly. God damn it. And we got it in and, uh, I brought it up, the you know, thing, and of course the flatfish has all these gang hooks in it and everything. I said, and there was a there was a pocket in the rocks of a deep a, a hole, you know. I said, keep the fish alive in here. Run back to your house and get a camera. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had one. I didn't have a camera. Right. He had some kind of a little brownie camera. Then he came back. He took a picture. I have it somewhere, but I I was looking for it the other day. I can't find it, but it's somewhere. But anyway, uh, then we had to keep the fish under the water so it was still breathing and we had to get those damn treble hooks out of it right it's got like three two two or three sets of treble hooks i mean they're horrible you know you know and you know we did we got them out and put the thing back in the creek and then after that in the next couple of winters and we knew what we would do is go down in the high water and fish with flatfish in these holes and we would catch the steelhead and of course, that was completely illegal. <laughs> it was to protect the steelhead. They had regulations. There were back regulations then. back then, but get this: you could kill ten of the babies anytime you wanted per day. Now, 
figure that one out. So anyway, then then once, you know, I mean, the minute I got that driver's license, I bought like a $50 wreck of a car. I was out of there. I mean, I was out of the house. That was it for me. And even though I was still, um, I still had, I still had a year of high school, I think. Or maybe I was out of high school. But anyway, um, now I could, you know, I could go to the Russian River when I wanted, go up the coast, and the mouth of Paper Mill Creek, where the, the creek that where my dad took me, mm-hmm. emptied into Tamales Bay, where I live right now. Oh. And it had a huge run of silver salmon and a pretty good run of steelhead and quite a few striped bass in the season. So there was lots to fish for. Did you have any idols at the time? Like, was there anyone from the magazine who you, you really looked up to? Well... You know, the, as far as the magazines were concerned, my favorite guy was Ted Trueblood. And but there were but in those days there were there were professional fishermen. Each magazine had their own ones. I mean, for example, uh, Outdoor Life. Uh, their famous fisherman was Joe Brooks. In those days, those guys were really experts. I mean, they weren't like today where you got some jerk off. You know, <laughs> I mean. Happy you said it. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, uh, Jack O'Connor was a hunter, a hunter's hunter, and he was the hunting editor, shooting editor of Outdoor Life, and uh, Field and Stream. I, you know, I was I liked to shoot, and we and my dad hunted doves and quail and, th- and ducks, and I I still do. I love it, but we, I was more focused on the fishing. So Ted Trueblood was the guy that I focused on. Well, I knew about Bill Shad because of the of our house on the Russian River. You know, I mean, even when we were twelve or thirteen years old, if you, when we were, my cousin and I would go down to fish for black bass or whatever. You know, there was a guy who lived down the down the road, and uh, and he would see us going down with our fishing rod and everything, and he would say, he'd say, you you guys should figure out where where that Bill Shad is fishing because that's where the fish are. <laughs> and so I mean I and I was so completely crazed into it that when from the time that I got the car, probably even for a couple of years before that, I mean I fished every day for three thousand consecutive days. I mean <laughs> I, nothing else existed for me. I didn't what? go to school. I flunked out of school. I didn't give a shit about anything. Wait, so you didn't finish university? No. What? Okay, where does the art, and I'll come back to the fishing, obviously, but where does art enter your world, well, apart I, from being born into an art family? Well, that's where it comes from. Okay. Because when, when my cousin and I were, I think I was eight and he was seven, or I might have been nine and he was eight, I don't know. His father, Phil, the guy that showed us to fly fish, and his and my mom's sister, you know, we we would go to the ranch in the summertime. You have to remember, we did. There's no TV. There's no. We didn't even have a radio. There's no distractions. So they said it's time for you guys to learn how to paint. So they gave us this paint box, yeah, and and paint, and they and and, he's, and <laughs> you're not going to believe this. I have a photograph of me making my first painting that my aunt took with a box brownie, and I still have the painting. Oh, oh my goodness! You know. And they said, and here's our art training. So they said, put out the white, the blue, the red, the yellow, blah, here like this. Here's your thing. You got turpentine or paint thinner. We actually used coal oil, I think. And here's your brush. Here's a rag. Um, now get out of here. 
and don't come back till dark. <laughs> so what? And then they sent you out? Yeah. To go and paint landscape? Yeah. Oh, now it's all making sense now. <laughs> it's all making sense. Okay, did you love it at the time? Well, I, I, I tried to eat the paint. You, you just I, adored I, it. I smelled so good, I thought it's got to be good to eat. <laughs> well, trust me, it's not. I believe you. I'll take your word for it. But um, And then, you know, my cousin was, he still paints today, but he was, a, you know, he was more of a normal kid, you know. he I mean, by the time he was 16 or 17, he was looking to get girlfriends and stuff. I never spoke to girls. I didn't have time for that. <laughs> and... Uh, I just, you know, all through, from the time I was nine, all through grade school and all through high, after school, I had a bike, I had a fishing rod and a paint box, and that's what I did after school. I never associated with any of the other kids. I never went to school functions. I never went to, you know, it's all I did after school. And then once I got the car, shit, that was over. I just had the boat on top of the car, shotgun and twenty two in the back, fly rod in the front. <laughs> And, and we just, just curl them up inside the car, you know, and uh, every day, you know, not necessarily all day every day, yeah. you would have, you know, if I was going out into the country, well, if the tide was right for fishing, I'd be fishing, mm -hmm. you know, and if the tide was coming in or was high or was wrong, I'd just whip the paint box out Make a paint a couple of paintings. What What about making a living? If you didn't finish, and why did you drop out of college? Was it because you just had better things? To I do? did. You know, I only went to like one year of junior college. I didn't. I just I couldn't concentrate. I wasn't interested. You know, and uh, I couldn't make a living. I had no way to make a living. Actually, what happened was it's kind of interesting, really. And I'm thinking about it because I'm living right near where I first uh, lived when I was married. There was a woman who was very smart, and she was teaching art history. She was teaching Asian art history, printmaking, and drawing at the at the little community college. And I took a, I took her classes, and I was fascinated because I'd never sp really even spoken to a woman before or a girl. I mean, I just didn't. I just if I saw one coming, I just crossed the street or get out of the way. You were one of those guys. <laughs> and I always chased you guys in school. I loved that. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so so this woman Doris and I started hanging out together, and I fell in love with her. We got married. She was twenty years older than I was. Wait, I was how old were you? I was only like twenty. That's incredible. Yeah, and she she had about 10 degrees from university. She had master's degrees, PhDs, you name it. And so I try. I couldn't, I, there was nothing I could do that could really make a living for us. I mean, buck 50 an hour is not going to cut it. Yeah. Even in those days where the rent for our house was only 50 bucks, it, it's hard for people to understand today that that people people like electricians and plumbers and uh, carpenters and things like that made a hundred dollars a week. Right. You know, they made four hundred dollars a month, and they they could live pretty well on that. They had, their wife didn't have to work. They had a car, two cars. They had a house. They had. So she went back to teaching, and I, you know, I painted all the time. But I mean, of course, I wasn't selling anything. They weren't any good, but I didn't care, and I didn't know any different. So I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Kind of tried to take care of our daughter when she was little. Oh, so you did have a baby? Yeah, we had a, a, a daughter. But I never did, you know, really, she was she was a little crazy. Doris was? <laughs> yeah, and uh, 
I couldn't, I really couldn't, I finally had to leave. But it was a horrible thing for me because I had, you know, in my mind, I, I, this marriage was for life. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, didn't get into it in a casual way. And how old were you at this time? Let's see, I, I, we started seeing each other when I was 18, 66. So we were together eight years. It was very painful, very, very horrible. It, it would be with a, a child, too. It's hard. Yeah, it, it left a real scar on me for 20 years after that. But I, I, st I painted my heart out the whole time. But, of course, I couldn't sell anything. I mean, they weren't any good. Do you, do you think that, I mean, if you look back now, being so accomplished, when you look at your original paintings... Do you still think that they weren't very good, or did you just think that at the time? No, I think they're no good even now. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. I mean, because they were they were what we call juvenilia. I mean, they were. I had no training. You know, I didn't go to art school. I didn't. But I. But the thing is that Doris had a huge library, and she had. She must have had three hundred art books. So I studied every single one from cover to cover. So I knew something, and I. San Francisco didn't have, the museums in San Francisco didn't have much art. They really didn't. There was very, very little to see, and I saw it all. So fortunately, my grandfather was a great painter, you know, so I had him to, to lean on, to, 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 to focus on. And some of his friends were pretty good painters, too. So, I mean, I had a, you know, as time passed, I mean, I was kind of getting the idea. And then I went to... Um, um, when I met my second wife, Mary, we, we, we went to Montana in 1971. Mm. Basically, the reason for that was that I had decided that I couldn't, that there was no way I could make a living. I mean, I couldn't work on a $2 an hour job for five days a week. When was I going to learn to paint right. or write? So I said, if we go to Montana where it's dirt cheap and I'm never going to take another crappy job. I'm just going to paint and write. I don't care how poor we are. You'll just have to put up with it. <laughs> and she was fine with that. And we, we did okay. I mean, we rented a whole ranch for $500 a year. And I could, I was starting to sell fishing stories. I made all my living as a writer from the time I was like 28 until I was 32 or three. So you're still really fishing hard at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And then you see what happened was in the in the, about the time that I was getting fixing to leave Doris, and I you know which I didn't want to do. I mean, believe me, it was a horrendous thing that uh, that happened. You know, I caught that world record striper. Well, suddenly I was like one of the most famous fly fishermen in the country. Just overnight. Yeah, it was in every newspaper. It was syndicated in the Associated Press. My picture was in the New York Times and all over the country. And how big was this world record? Was thirty six pounds, and the the previous record was twenty nine. Mm. Was Joe Brooks caught it in nineteen twenty nine? I mean nineteen forty nine, and it was twenty nine pounds. So it had stood all that time, and there were basically no one. I was really the only one even fly fishing for stripers. There wasn't anybody else until the late 60s and into the 70s, then a few people kind of caught on to it and so forth. So that enabled me to sell these stories to these magazines. I mean, and the pay was kind of laughable, but, it, but you have to understand that the time, if I got $300 for a story, that was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Well, then when I became friends with Tom McGuane and Jim Harrison and some other people who were writers, they were doing some work for Sports Illustrated, which was a big time.
And so I wrote a story in around 1970 or something. I can't remember. It might have been just when I got to Montana. And I sold it to the first thing I'd ever submitted to Sports Illustrated. They bought. Well, they paid like thousands. And suddenly I'm going, whoa, (laughs) now I get it. (laughs) I, I know where I'm going. Coming up, Russell and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Canvas Pop for making this episode possible. Made in America, all Canvas Pop prints are hand-stretched by their expert craftsmen in their American production facility. What better Christmas gift for the special people in your life than a printed memory of a cherished moment or fish? Again, don't miss out. Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code Anchored at checkout or visit canvaspop.com. Would you describe yourself as an ambitious man? No. Would you describe yourself? How would you describe yourself? Apart from you know not being an A type person. Well, I mean, I I think I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty easygoing. You you seem pretty easygoing. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't. I never had a career. I never wanted to get into the art world. I, I I tried. I mean, I went to all these galleries and everything. I don't like these people. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, these people are assholes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be in this construct you know and so I didn't and I thought I just don't care you know and and other I watched other people get into it and have their art dealers and do all this stuff that they did you know I said I'm not doing that I'm not doing that well then it was just absolute luck that I started to really learn to paint by the late 70s by 1980, let's say, I was getting reasonably okay and was able to sell a few things. And pretty soon, the next thing I knew, people were coming to Montana to see me. Right. I thought, I don't have to go see them. They come and see me. (laughs) (laughs) So just from the fishing stance, you've got Sports Illustrated. That's big time. And... Does it kind of peter off from there, and then you focus more on art? Or yeah, do pretty they... much. Well, the funny thing is that it was around 1980, I guess. The kind of stories that I liked, I never told anybody where to fish or how to fish or how to tie their leader on or you know any of that. I just told stories. And the market for that petered out. The magazines didn't want to buy it anymore. Uh, when did you find that it petered out? Well, about 1980. Okay. And Sports Illustrated changed their entire format. They no longer wanted to buy any uh, freelance work. Oh. So that was gone. And the magazines like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and the, the, the standard hook and bullet magazines, they wanted to either tell the people where to fish or how to fish. And I said, I, that, I can't. I mean, why would I want to do that? It's too boring. I mean, it's <laughs> like, so and I thought, but, well, besides that, I'm actually selling a few paintings now. Why don't you concentrate on seeing what you could do to 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 help this situation out? So I said, well, okay, what do I need to do? Well, I wasn't going to get an art dealer. I didn't want to be in the art world. I said, but there's got to be some way to get around it. And I and so if I figure out that um, I did a show in New York by by Going, it wasn't in an art gallery. It was in a, a really hip restaurant, oh. and I, there was friends of mine that were that had been at Sports Illustrated were now 
the editor of Time and Life magazine, and and I so we set that up, and I had an you know an exhibition at this place that was not it, I mean it was kind of artsy, but it wasn't a gallery, you know. And then I did one in San Francisco at a gallery. I did one in Seattle. When I said I got to hit the cities, got to do L.A., got to do Seattle, blah blah blah, and they were all really successful. But how was your name growing? I mean, I know how it was growing in fishing. How was it growing in the art world? I don't, you know, I'm not sure I can really answer that, but I'll tell you what, when we did the show in New York, it came on the heels of, there was a, a the, the, the People Magazine sent a reporter out to Livingston and to, to, because of the fact that there were writers there and blah, blah, blah. But it turned out that, she wanted to more to write about me rather than these writers. And so, <laughs> so, so this article comes out in People magazine, you know, which is millions of circulation, right? It's still enormous. It's yeah, huge. I mean, and of course she and I start having an affair instantly. <laughs> and so, so she helped me set the show up in New York. It was the he most heavily attended private exhibition and that the city had ever seen there were so fucking many people came to the opening that the police had to had to close the streets around this restaurant and block the streets off there were there was i i kind of forget but there was something like two or three thousand people milling around trying to get into this little place that you couldn't even get 200 people in it this would be all over the news it was yeah and so then i did one in seattle and the same thing happened because a friend of mine knew the editor of the Seattle Times. So they sent a reporter over to Montana and they did the longest story they'd ever done in the Sunday Mag. I figured out the Sunday Magazine in a big city newspaper is the one thing everybody reads. Of course. So you got to get your story in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so we did. It was the longest piece. There were so many people came to that Seattle thing. I sat there for two and a half days signing books and posters. I must have signed 10,000 posters. I mean, we, and we sold all the paintings, too, by the way. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know. This is a success. And then we did one in San Francisco, downtown on Sutter Street, and the same thing happened that happened in New York, that they had to call the police. They had TV cameras hanging off the building with the cameras coming down, and... A lot of these fancy people from, from Hollywood came up, like Jack Nicholson and people. So all the TV people want to get in on that. And so it was all over the news, all over the newspapers for like six or seven weeks. And there was, there was at least 3,000 people trying to get into this gallery. They were, they had police, we had people parking cars, you know, valet parkers. The cops were yelling at everybody. They blocked off the street. They pulled their squad cars that, so cars could come down Sutter Street. How, I mean, how are you handling the fame? I mean, just it's, it's, you just don't seem like a fame. Mongrel. I'm not a, no, I, no, but I was having fun. Okay. Because okay. I was getting laid. <laughs> and, and I thought, this is the way to, this is how you do it. Right. <laughs> you know? And I mean, I wasn't really making very much, not any money that any person would think was a big deal, believe me. So it was fascinating to me. I mean, it was almost like I was out, I was outside of it looking in, right. thinking, look at this, <laughs> look how weird this is, you know? And I don't know, it was just like, since I had never ever dreamed, I, I had assumed 
my whole life that I would always be poor right. and I would never make any money and I didn't give a shit. So that's not why I'm doing this. But suddenly these people wanted to buy these things. And I thought, I'll let them, you know. Were your parents around to see all this success? Uh, my dad passed away in 75 or 78. He wasn't. Uh, my mother was around. I, I don't know what the hell she thought. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, my dad, all my life, he was just saying, you're, you know, you're nothing but a bum. You can't, you know, you, you can't go fuck around all your life just fishing and painting. What's, what are you going to do? you got to get a job. And I, I thought to myself, I'm not getting a job. I don't want to get it. What, doing what? You know, I don't know what kind of a job to get. I'm not qualified for anything, you know. And um, so, you know, it's one of those funny things that you're still trying to prove to your dead father that you're not a bum. <laughs> and my mother, you know, I actually started to make what for me was, was pretty okay money. I mean, and I never wanted, I never bought new cars. I didn't have boats. I, you know, I didn't buy stuff. I just always drove a crappy car, and I didn't give her care. But I bought her a new car, and I sent her and her boyfriend on trips all over the place, you know, to cruises and what gave them a train ride all the way to Canada and New York and New Orleans. And she, she would have been loving you. What about you? Did you start traveling at this point? Uh, yeah, I did. I started traveling about around 1980, but I, but I, I didn't have the money to really do it, but. But I got invited to go on some trips as a writer. Like I got invited to go to New Zealand when these guys started the first fishing fishing international, the first fishing travel company that Bob Nauheim and Frank Britannia started in in Santa Rosa. They needed me to hype their locations oh. because nobody traveled in those days to fish. So, so if we went to Norway, we went to New Zealand. I forget where else we went. And I got to go for free. All I had to do was write how great it was. But then, you know, later once I had enough money to pay to actually pay to go somewhere, then I start really started going. I mean, I went everywhere everywhere I could think of where I wanted to go. Did you try to keep your fishing image and your artistic image separate? There's a lot of crossover. A lot of the guys that are that I and women for that matter, you know, who like my work also happen to like fishing and hunting. Mm -hmm. I mean, sense. it's like the sensibility somehow bleeds over, and you know, I, 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 not that I don't have people who have bought paintings and so forth who certainly don't fish or hunt. In fact, the two main guys I have now do not fish or hunt, but but there's a, a lot of them that do. But the majority of your work is landscape. Yeah, yeah. Did you much. ever get into doing the crazy fish art that you see everywhere no. nowadays? Why no. didn't you go that route? I, it didn't make any sense to me. I mean, How so? I, it's not well. I'm not an illustrator, for one mm. thing. I mean, I have done little illustrations for some books just because I needed to do it. But it didn't. You know, I didn't want to become. A, I wasn't going to be a wildlife artist. Right. You know. Now, when did you come back to California? I think 2011. Oh gosh, really recently. So before I jump you to that point, what happens after New York? I'm assuming the affair with the publicist or the writer. It didn't writers. last very long. Yep, totally fair. And then you come back to Montana? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was in Montana. Um, I, I very foolishly got married again <laughs> to, to the only woman I've ever known that I don't like, that I don't speak to. Russ, you went from not liking, not having any relations with women yeah. 
to to being all about the ladies. That's right. <laughs> uh, okay, I, so that soured. I did it up right, but the thing is, I was I I did always. I mean, I love women, and I get along famously with. Them. So I'm friends with pr- pretty much every woman that I've ever either been married to or had affairs with. Today, I mean, seriously, it's yeah. a pr- pretty couple big handfuls. <laughs> but you know, we're all friends, and I and I like that. Yeah. But this one woman, she saw me. I was just starting to make some money. She saw this show in San Francisco, and she she went, "Ah, oh, this guy." This guy's, A, he's dumb as a post, and he's ripe for the plucking, and he's going to make a bunch of money, and I'm going to get it. Got it. And she did. It's a pretty popular club that you're in there. Yeah. (laughs) You're not alone. So then, this is all in Montana, and then, was was there any other really big life-changing experience or any, any other big event that I'm missing that happened in Montana? Yeah, probably. I mean, I... I started learning to do lithography about 1980. Oh, I read about this. Okay, can you just explain what that is? Well, it's it. You know, you you make the drawings on a on either a stone or a metal plate, and there and you you draw each color out by hand. It's uh, in fact, I'll send you just for fun. I should have grabbed one and brought it with me, but I didn't think of it. This video that I or this documentary I made about it. It's very complicated, but anyway, I got really good at it and. So I did that, and then, you know, I I didn't want to... I got really fed up with publishing. I published three or four books with publishers, a couple in New York and San Francisco, and, and the books just went out of print, and I, I didn't like those people any better than I like the art people, so I thought, I'll just start my own publishing company. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's Clark City Press. It's in that front of that book. There. That's you. Yeah. Very cool. So, and then... You know, I, I, I started going out with a, with a woman who was probably one of the great loves of my life. We were together 15 years. Oh, wow. It's the only woman I was ever faithful to. 15 years. I couldn't look at another woman. Oh. Anyway, no, it was ha- I was happy as a piss clamor. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, that wasn't like, oh, I'm disappointed for no, you. No, that no. Was, oh, this is awesome. No, it was, it was and I mean, I, 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 and I built a restaurant. I had built a really famous restaurant, and I ran it. What? Where does this come into the mix? Sorry, that that threw me off. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I, had, I said, well, nobody saw that one coming. <laughs> and people, like, I have a lot of friends in the restaurant business and chefs and owners and things like that. And and when they see what I did, they look at, they said, you didn't do that. You couldn't have possibly have done that. Is I, it still in existence today? No, I sold it in 2007. Because basically the reason I did was that it was so hard to, to, to staff the kitchen up there. I, was, I said, I can't keep people. I, my, my wait staff is all cool because they're making a lot of money. The kitchen is, is a disaster. I cannot keep it. So Liz and I were together during that, all of that. And, um, and then in the, kind of at the tail end of that, uh, you know, I really got had about six or eight really high roller clients, and I really made a lot of money. And I and I did what they told me to do, which was buy real estate. Well, that was fine. And had had the market not crashed, I would have made a, even more money. But the market did crash in 2008, mm-hmm. and I lost every fucking cent. I was homeless and broke. You? Yeah. In 2000, that's not that long ago. 2008. 2009. Oh my God! I lost eleven. I lost seventeen million dollars worth of stuff in Holy time hell. it takes to bake a cake, 
and I was out on the street. I didn't have a cent. I was banks came in and, and the IRS came in, and I mean, I was, I was homeless, and I thought, what am I going to do? Where'd you stay? I came down here, and I called my sister, and I said, I said, look, I don't. They took my house. They took my studio. I said, I don't have a thing. Can I sleep in your spare room? And that's when you came back to California. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Wow! 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 I was not a happy camper, and it took a while. You know, I really thought that. You know, I don't know if I can come back from this. When the market crashed, I was actually in New York picking up a couple jobs. I had three appointments on guys that worked on Wall Street. It's about $3 million worth of work. And I thought, man, I'm going to have a great year. Yeah. You know. And that's when the stock market tanked. Right. I was there. But I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what it meant. So, but these, all of these guys canceled all the jobs that they had had me do. So I went from making, you know, $70,000 a month to making zero. And I couldn't make the land payments and the property payments. Oh, how so devastating. So everything was foreclosed on in a heartbeat. But it's so hard. I mean, you're very famous. Doesn't matter. And back then you're very famous. <laughs> and you're homeless. Like, I can't wrap my head around it. Well, I couldn't either. I mean, and I thought... I, I mean, I kept shaking my head. And I think, you know, I'm like one of the highest profile people in the state of Montana, and no one's talking to me. That is so crazy. You, you know, the banks that were, who were all my friends, I had like, there are five banks in Livingston. I banked, I divided all my money up five ways because they were presidents of the banks were all friends of mine. They, boy, the minute that happened, they weren't friends of mine anymore. I mean, it just was like... You know. So how do you recover from that? And what what's going on with the fishing at this point? Are you still fishing during all this? Um, yeah, a little bit, not not crazily by any means, uh, but yeah. Well, when I was making the money, I could I could do whatever I wanted. So I could go to New Zealand. I could go to Russia. I could go to Iceland. I could pay the full tab for everything. So I did. Once it went down, I you know it was basically homeless for a year. I finally found a place to live out in the country out there. And I, I thought, what am I going to do? I mean, I, how am I going to, how am I going to get out of this? You know, I mean, <laughs> and I didn't think I'd be able, I, I mean, I thought, well, that's it. I guess it's, you're done. And then I, but I was still, you know, I found a place just, a, just like one thing happened, miracle. I found a little studio and I said, just, get it you know and a couple of my clients came back and and so I, I had enough money that I could live in a house now about the size of this car but it was a house and the pay for the studio and so forth so I just started working started painting every day you know and did you find therapy in that does it is it therapeutic for you still I don't know if I'd call it therapy but I have to do it for well, I do it. I have or? to do it for emotional reasons, uh, but I also have to do it for financial reasons. So some of these clients kind of came back, and you know, it was slow. It took them a while because they they all these rich guys got really scared when that happened. But the really rich guys didn't get hurt. Right. The billionaires didn't take any hit. Trust me on that one. So those are the guys that helped me out. Guys that have so fucking much money that. <clears throat> they can't possibly lose it. So they came back. They came back. And, and when do you start to really feel yourself kind of come back to life? Well, 
I would have to honestly say it wasn't till a, it really wasn't till a couple three years ago. But I was, you know, during that time too. I'm afraid that you know I thought it would be a good idea to drink a lot. Did you find that this reflected in your art? Did did your art look a little darker? What I saw was that scared me, and the reason I quit. When I was writing, I was starting to forget where I was within the story. And the paintings, I think, you know, I don't know that the paintings were affected one way or another. Maybe they were, but I said, you know, if you keep this up, you're you're going down. So you better figure it out. I'm going to just be kind of selfish here for a second, but in 2008, I had a bad car accident. And I remember people knew who I was, but I was overnight broke and injured and alone and depressed after my car accident. I mean, it's life. But I just remember being so angry at the world because everybody knew who I was. Everyone wanted a photo or an article or gear or a sign something. It's just everybody wanted to take something. And it's almost like they couldn't imagine that just because they knew who I was, that I would be in so much pain. Mm -hmm. Did you go through a situation where you were like, everybody wants something from me? And I can't even get out of bed sometimes. That's right. No, it was like my name was so good in Montana that if I endorsed a, a political candidate, a Democratic candidate for senator or for governor, that guy won. I mean, I I put people in office, literally. And, you know, when this when all this shit hit the fan, you know, they couldn't be bothered. You know, it was like. What, what have you done for me lately? And I'm thinking, I mean, I didn't, it, you know, I didn't dwell on it or anything, but I thought even with, when I was making a lot of money, I gave at least half of it away. I supported every charity. Only the ones that I would give to would be the Native Americans and children. Anything that children's hospitals or Native American schools or all, and I gave millions of dollars away. I mean, I really did. Now, those people, I'm sure you know, those kind of people understand things, how the world is. But the but the, the fancy people don't. What about the fishing community? Were they there for you? Well, uh, yeah, I would say so. You know, I mean, I never had a lot of friends. I had, I had a few really good close friends, all of whom are dead now, pretty much. Are you still out there fishing? Yeah, although, you know, I'm working so hard now. Now that I saw that I could bring myself back, I'm working long hours, seven days a week, trying to building a big, going to be a very high visibility gallery. And plus I've got some huge commissions came back. And, you know, so it's like I'm going to be dangerous again. A year or two. You're already dangerous. (laughs) That's what you were doing today. You were in the studio today before you came out here. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And and are you painting for? Can the general public buy your work right now, or is it still years waiting? Well, it's it mostly what I do is bought by a few people in advance. But when I open this gallery, there'll be a few little things for sale. And I'm gonna what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna try to do something that nobody wants to do, which is do reproductions of paintings, digital, you know, I bought the per- the press and everything, and sell them for what they're worth, which is cheap, which is dirt cheap, so that regular people can get these images. You know, I mean, I've got the rich guys, but what about the rest of, the, what about the other 99 and 9 tenths percent of the people? They had nothing for them. Art galleries don't want them. If you can't write a big check, they don't want you in there. 
Right. You know, so so I'm hoping that I can recapture the ordinary person market. So I watched you in Rivers of a Lost Coast, and that, you guys really got my brain ticking there. Well, yeah, the guy, the young guys that made that film are very cool guys, and they 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 kind of named the, the the Lost Coast after my book, The Angler's Coast, mm. and it's a it's a sore subject with me because. Because the fish and game, now they call them the Fish and Wildlife Department. God forbid anybody should think there's any hunting or fishing involved, you know. And they're, the people who, what, here's how it works. The director of the Department of Fish and Game is a political appointee. So each new governor appoints a new head of the fish and game. Well, guess what? The, that guy's job is to make sure that whoever donated to the governor's campaign gets what he wants. If it's a tomato farmer down in the San Joaquin Valley and he wants more water, then he tells the fish and game, make sure that that guy gets water. So the biologists, the field people, which are which always start out honest, the good ones either quit in disgust or are pushed out. So you have all this, all the damage that's been done to the salmon and steelhead is directly related to fish and game not doing their job, you know, doing the very reverse of their job. And I don't know what to do about it because I'm getting blue in the face talking to people about it. And somebody's feet have got to be held to the fire here, you know, because you can't have, we can't, well, we can't keep doing this. And what's the organization? Uh, who are the people you were hanging out with the other day? The Russian River Organization? Oh, they're the Russian River Wild Steelhead Society. Yeah. Um, they're, they're doing what they can, but they're up against the fish and game. The fish and game keeps sabotaging because they're motivated by by special interests, so they got so they want to have the commercial fishermen want more salmon in the ocean. So what do they do? They build a salmon hatchery on the Russian River, which is which is and the king salmon is not a native fish of the Russian River. So they're going completely against you know what they're supposed to be doing by releasing these fish into streams where they don't belong, where they're not native trying to get more fish to go out in the ocean so the commercial fishermen can catch them. Well, you know, that's counterproductive. This is going to come across as offensive, and I ask that you bear with me. When I talk to the younger generation, say my generation, I'm 34, and we talk about, you know, the guys, you guys, legendary guys, the guys from the 40s and 50s in California, I always hear people say, you know, those guys, they hate, they hate the fishery because they've seen a change, and they hate having to learn how to use the new gear. And for a long time, I was like, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I've spoke to a lot of the older guys. They don't want to get on a two-handed rod. They, they despise shooting heads. But then as I'm getting older and I see fisheries around me start to change so much that they're unrecognizable, it's not so much that I can't keep up with the gear. It's not that. It's that I can't stomach seeing how much it's changed yeah well it's yeah it doesn't have anything to do it doesn't have anything to do with the fishing gear i think it what it is is that um i mean i i hope and i i, I presume that some of these younger people are getting the idea that you know that we can't keep using the same system that we used before you know um and in fact you know, I mean, the, the mentality now is, what dam will we take down next? Well, that's fantastic. In my, a lot of the people, most of the people of my generation are dead. 
But we were not conservationists in the sense that you need to be a conservationist now because there were too few of us, number one. I mean, there were, there were so few fly fishermen were, there were a few dozen, you know. You think that if they, that they complained about building a dam on the Russian River, anybody was going to listen? No. You know, because the developers, the housing developers, needed the water to, to, so they could build more houses, get water hookups. It seems to me that there is an awful lot of uh, obsession, I, I don't know what else to call it these days, with expensive stuff. You know, I don't get that. You know, it's not supposed to be expensive. It's supposed to be free <laughs> or cheap at least, you yeah. know. I mean, fishing is supposed to be free, but of course it's not anymore. You know, I mean, you want to catch a Atlantic salmon, it's going to cost you 10 grand. Yeah. You know, and you and then but, but after you bought the $5,000 worth of gear that the fly guy shop guy told you to buy. You know, I mean, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, what about walking over to the river? <laughs> Well, we can't walk over to the river because we killed all the fish here. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Are you going to settle down in California? Is that the spot you're going to? Pretty much. I mean, I don't know what, where else I'd go. This is where I, I grew up and where I started fishing and painting. And I'm out where I live. It's all protected. It's all ranches. There's no development. And it's all in agricultural protection. Um, so it looks just like it did 70, 80 years ago. Because the fish are gone. That's too bad. But... You know the thing that the thing that, that that really gets me angry is that if we had a fish and game department that actually wanted to bring the fish back, we could. But you got to you can't have roadblocks in your way. It's got to be. It's not a societal priority at all. I mean, the main body of people in California don't even know there was ever a fish in a river. They could care less. That's really devastating. Yeah, I mean, they just don't. You you, you know. I mean, I've written a lot of stuff about this and published it in the local papers, and I can tell by the responses that people just don't give a shit. You know, it's like I said in one article, I said, if you put a, if you put a steelhead and a silver salmon on a table in the, in the city hall, civic center and, you know, polled everybody that walked by to, if they could tell you what they were, not one person could tell you. Not forget about telling you where they spawned or how they spawned or whether they were male or female or whether one was a salmon and one was a... They wouldn't know, they wouldn't know any more about that than they do going into the store and buying something in a package to cook. Would they have known in the 50s? I don't think... I, some more people may have known, but not very many, no. It was too obscure. It's just too obscure. I mean, think of, think of the uphill trail that John Muir was on. I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, he's the one guy. He's only the only guy, <laughs> you know, who said, don't build that dam. And then they laughed at him and they said, go fuck yourself. You know, get out of here. He tried to stop the city of San Francisco from damming the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which he, which he said was even more beautiful than Yosemite. They built a pipeline from the Sierras. That's where San Francisco gets its water. And he said, you can't do that. You know, it's, a, it's, it's the most valuable valley in the Sierras. They hated him, and now he's celebrated. Right. Isn't it funny how he, that works? Yeah, and, and, but he's not celebrated by the uh, Donald Trumps of the world, let me tell you. 
<laughs> now, look, I'm going to let you get out of this hot track. Moving forward for you, because you're still really full of piss and vinegar. What uh, What's next for you besides coming back with a vengeance? I never think that I never think of you as gone. By the way, like, well, I mean, just... I mean, I'm not gone. I mean, I thought I was, but I'm not. I have, you know, I'm going to re, I'm going to republish the, my books that are all out of print. Plus, I have two or three new ones that I'm that I've been working on for years that I'm going to publish. That'll, you know, that'll all theoretically rise to the surface, hopefully. Although people don't really buy books anymore. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Well, There's I mean, of some of us do, but. But uh, book sales of, of fishing books this used to be fly fishermen were a big market for fishing books. They, these young guys don't buy books at all. But that's not going to stop me. I'm going to do it because I want to do it. I'm I can't not... see much of anything stopping you, to be honest. <laughs> um, is there anything that I haven't thought to ask or that you would like to add? I think I think that just to, just for one, just to take two seconds. Yeah, yeah, take it. You have all the time in the take, world. I think that it's it's really interesting because the reason that I use the kind of tackle that I use is I think it's pretty and it's and it's got history and it's I love it because I love to hold it I love to look at it and so forth and you know the the thing is as I have managed to go everywhere in the world that I wanted to go you know you get into uh situations a lot of it has had to be at different lodges because that's the only way you could get to those that water, mm-hmm. like like on the Russian coast, you can't really freelance it. I mean, you know, it's it's too hard. You know, so you go to the lodge. Well, so sometimes the guides would be Russian. Sometimes they'd be young Americans, or if they were Russians, it was really interesting because they because I'd go down there, and they look at what what I'm using. They they didn't know what it was, you know, and they, they so they would say, "What is this?" You know, I, I said, what, what's it made out of? And I said, it's made out of fiberglass. They don't have any idea what that is. And they said, is it very expensive? And I said, no. I said, we used to be able to buy this rod when I was young, when I was 20 years old. The, the blank that I made, I made all these rods. The blank was generally between 3 and $5 dollars. You know, the real seat was a buck and a half, and the guides were 50 cents, and you got yourself a fishing rod, you know. And I said, well, now the, re- the reels that I have that are 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, now they're worth a lot of money, but that's not why I have them. Right. I've had them for so many years. I said, if something's 90 years old and it still works perfectly, I like that. Why change it? <laughs> why change it? I think you'll find there's a resurgence. I know I dove into the historical tackle over the last little while, and there's a there's actually a little there's a little community yeah, that starts I, to I, come I, out. I kind of found that out too. I went up to uh, where, where was I? Oh, I was uh, I went up to the Russian River a couple two two or three years ago. And I was going to go shad fishing, even though I didn't realize there aren't any more shad in the river. Oh, wow. But anyway, because the river's dried up, there's no flow to bring them in. Anyway, so I went down to this beach where there was about four or five guys fishing there. I thought, well, I guess this is where the, they said, oh, there's some shad in here, whatever, which there wasn't. But anyway, a couple of the guys, three of the guys, all had glass rods. And they saw me, and they said, hey, Mr., can I see your rod? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, going, I'm looking, I said, and I saw there, I said, what kind do you have? And the guy says, it's a Fenwick, you know, and I said, really? I said, where'd you get it? And he's, you know, they, they said, well, we thought it'd be cool to, 
get get some old rods. You it know? is. It's becoming cool again. Bamboo too. It is. It's starting to become cool again. The whole graphite thing, when it first came out, I uh, was about nineteen. Um, I want to say seventy three or four, maybe or five. I can't really remember, but I remember when it happened, and I and um and I had heard about it, and some people had called me and so forth. So I called. Um, I told the editor at Sports Illustrated, I said, you know, everybody's talking about this graphite stuff. You know, I said, I should write it. I should find out about it and write about it. I was looking, I'm always looking for something I need to make some money on. And anyway, so I called, I'd, I'd known Ray Jeff since he was 10 years old, you know. And my friend, John Tarantino, who was the greatest caster I've ever seen, had been murdered in about that time. And so Ray Jeff had grown, he was old enough by then, I think he was maybe 16 or I can't remember. But anyway, so I called him and I, and I said, what, I said, you know anything about this graphite thing? He says, Shit. he says, well, I don't. He says, but we're going to find out because he says, I've got about 25 of them that I'm going to bring over to the pools. And uh, he said, why don't you meet me over there? You know, so we came over here and this rod sticking out all over the place, you know. So we cast them, put lines on them, and we cast them. They were fantastic because they because they were more like a they weren't this you know ramrod stiff bullshit. They were really the the people who made them had been making glass rods and bamboo rods, so they had really great actions. And they said, well, they're light as a feather, and they cast great. And you know, I I got a I used them for a few years, but I. The reason I quit was they broke so easy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Russ, you are a character man. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit in a truck with me on a hot day in San Francisco. <laughs> oh, well, it's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 